Good morning. The reading today is from Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then? Is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Great, let's keep Mark chapter 9 open. I'd love you to have sight of that as we work through the passage bit by bit, but let me pray to start with. Heavenly Father, we remember that request that some people made in Jesus's lifetime. Sir, we want to see Jesus. We pray you'd open our eyes to see him better and to know him for ourselves today. In Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I've missed most about the last year has been, wait for it, the lack of mountains within easy reach of Little Shelford. I've been reading mountaineering books to make up for it. I read about one lover of the Scottish Hills who said that altitude sickness was what they felt when they had a day trip to the beach. Well, I wouldn't go quite that far. I love a good beach trip. But I do have a longing for the heights. I'm missing being in wild mountain landscapes. And it's got so bad that nowadays, I get excited by the random pictures of mountains you sometimes get on the TV fire stick screensaver. They really get my pulse racing. So you can imagine, I'm excited to be on a Bible mountain peak with you today. What we had in our reading is just what we all need to lift our eyes at the moment. Not just from lowly South Cambridgeshire at roughly 14 metres above sea level, but wherever we might be. You see, our perspective is very earthbound with 101 things that conspire to keep our eyes glued to ground level. Homeschooling, health issues, holidays, will we or won't we? 
Um, even having a wider focus, concern for our country's future or global issues, that doesn't necessarily help. We might look outwards, but we still don't easily look upwards. And our Bible reading today is an invitation to gain height. Mount Hermon, the probable scene of the Transfiguration, is over 2,000 metres, as it happens with the Golan Heights ski area a bit further along that plateau today. It's a striking thing that mountaintop experiences feature in both Old and New Testament in the Bible. In the Old Testament, on Mount Sinai, that's where Moses received the Ten Commandments, and he also asked God, show me your glory. And here in the New Testament, there is a glimpse of glory as Jesus was transfigured in the presence of Peter, James and John. And as verse 3 puts it, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Up on that mountaintop, they saw something which was out of this world. Don't we all need that ourselves today? Where we left things last Sunday, there had been a promise of glory. And given that Jesus was heading towards rejection and crucifixion, that was important. Maybe you're wondering what we really mean by glory. Sounds great, Simon. But what does it really look like? Jesus had said, if you follow me, you will suffer with me. But you are on the winning team. Glory means an ending to the suffering and an upending of all the opposition to Christ and his people, to evil in the world. You get a little hint of what was involved when Jesus spoke about the great day in the future when the Son of Man comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. He was saying that people might be ashamed of Jesus now, but on that day it will be different. He will be dazzlingly brilliant, supernatural, out of this world, with a, a retinue of heavenly beings that will blow the mind. Football teams sometimes have big victory processions when they win competitions. I think I'm right in saying that only one English team have won the treble, the cup, the league, and the European Champions League before. That was a great celebration with open-top buses and streamers. Well, followers of Jesus Christ have a much bigger and better victory parade to look forward to for a cause which is infinitely more glorious than any other human achievement. The one who suffered for their sins, the person in history who least deserved to suffer, who lived the most amazing life, he will come out top. And if we follow him, we get to be in on that day as well, with our sins forgiven and all that mucks up our world dealt with at a stroke. All the disappointments and difficulties of our life now just seem like a pinprick. And that was the encouragement Jesus had for his followers then. So chapter 9, verse 1, And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And then this glimpse of glory was given them, the mountaintop experience which gave them 
and gives us perspective for life at ground zero. Now, again, God's people had had things like this before. The cloud, for example, when they built the temple in the golden age of King Solomon, a supernatural cloud filled the temple, symbolising God's presence. And this event is similar, a cloud symbolising the glory of Almighty God. That's important. Glory doesn't just mean splendour, it means God's splendour. It's not just about the victory over evil and an end to suffering. It is that, of course. But that happens because the God of infinite glory steps in. You don't get glory, pure and simple. We're being called to encounter the God of glory and to fall down before him. Nothing is ever more important than that any day, but especially at the moment. So come to the mountaintop with me for a few moments, please. Did it really happen? That's a fair question, isn't it? With the dramatic change of Jesus's appearance, or a voice booming from the clouds, or Moses and Elijah showing up for a meeting with Jesus, two characters who hadn't been seen for hundreds of years. When was the last time you walked into a cafe and saw someone very familiar to you, the local postman, say, sitting down for a coffee with Henry VIII and William the Conqueror? This is not the sort of thing that happens every day. So, did it happen? Well, I'm so glad to have a chance to bring out my Bible detective, to look at the clues again. What are the clues? Just in verse 2 that this actually happened. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. Notice the timing. It was six days, not seven days, not five days, after Jesus had made that prediction that some of them standing there at that time would live to see the kingdom of God come with power. Notice who were the witnesses, Peter, James and John. They'd been standing there with Jesus six days earlier and here they are with him six days later up the mountain. There were a few times when they got to see things which not everyone else did. When Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus died, and here. Their names are part of the retelling of each incident, a bit like a sort of witness's signature. So you could have gone up to them and asked Peter, James and John, what actually happened when Jesus brought that little girl back to life or when he spoke with Moses? And this is what they would have said. There he was transfigured. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before us, they would have said, Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Here's another clue for us. The three disciples might also have owned up to what they said, as well as what they saw. Verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. That's an interesting clue because, once again, it's a realistic picture of the disciples not getting everything first time round. Peter 
didn't know what to say. Then another clue, as another sense is involved, what they heard as well as what they saw. That's in verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And I love the little eyewitness detail in the next verse as one more clue. You get the sense that Peter, James and John are looking left and right to see who's gone where. Verse 8. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Hey! Where on earth have Moses and Elijah gone? It'll be hopeless to have two out of three shelters empty. So did it happen? Well, the clues are there to suggest that we are in the realm of fact, not fiction. So what does it mean then? What was going on? I was watching some home movies of the fireworks from the Chinese New Year this week. A dazzling man-made display in the darkness. But this was on a different scale. Jesus's clothes were whiter than any human launderer could get them, or brighter than the most awesome firework display. Just for a moment, Jesus became visibly what he always was invisibly. The Bible says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. That's what Jesus was like before he walked the earth. It's what he's like now in heaven. In fact, the Bible says that God's design plan for the angels in heaven is to have as standard issue two extra wings, not for flying, but simply to shield their eyes from the amazing sight of the glory and majesty of King Jesus. In one sense, he really is out of this world, you see. He is almighty God. It made a, a deep impression on the disciples. So, says Peter, we didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about this, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, John says this, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. So in that dazzling brilliance, the disciples saw straight away that Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, was none other than the almighty, eternal God. And that made all the difference for them. Now, we're not going to focus on the conversation they had coming down from the mountain in verses 9 to 12, because they come off the mountain, down to planet Earth and ordinary life, with a bump. They've had a, a glimpse of glory. They've tasted the power of the kingdom of God. But for the moment, that is all it is, a taste. Jesus is not yet proclaimed as king. And his forerunner, John the Baptist, has been killed as he will be. That's the real world we all know. This is reality for the time being. But the mountaintop says to all of us today, don't be flat earthers. The full reality is something we can't see or rather someone, capital S, we can't see. There is a God in heaven, and he has come after us in his son, Jesus Christ. So we must listen to him. The voice from heaven couldn't really make it any clearer than it did. Moses and Elijah 
were God's great messengers. Well, Jesus is even greater because he is God himself, God's glory made visible. So above all the noise in our lives, we must listen to him, give him attention. Can I encourage you to do that, to get time alone to do it? Maybe as a project for Lent, read a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, to get a ringside seat on what the original eyewitnesses saw. And pray as you do for God's to open your eyes to know Jesus better. My wife Susu had an uncle, Tony. He'd had a tough life and he was a self-made man, a tough businessman in the auto parts industry. He was reading about Jesus in a gospel as a non-Christian. He actually had to dust off the Bible it had been sitting on the shelf for so long unread. And he had one of those rare moments where it really was as if he heard the voice of God saying to him, you know, Tony, that's my son. And he went straight upstairs, got on his knees and prayed for God to forgive him and for Jesus to come into his life. Now, you may not hear an audible voice like that as you read a gospel, but that encounter with Jesus is something we all need, not just knowing about him, but knowing him. And it is wonderfully possible as we see him through these eyewitnesses' eyes, through the Gospels, maybe. So please, now more than ever, let's take time out to read our Bibles. You don't have to climb a mountain, but look upwards and get alone with Jesus. This episode is a reminder that he loves us and he is longing to meet with us. There is a God in heaven and he has come after us in his son, Jesus Christ. So we must listen to him. Let's take a moment to pause now. Just a moment in this first instance, but perhaps you can do so often in the coming days and weeks to stop and pause. A moment's quiet. Then I'm going to say some words from a lovely song to close. Let's be quiet. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.